and welcome to the History of Islam podcast, episode 3, Pre-Islamic Arabia. Hello, and welcome back to another installment of the History of Islam podcast. Last episode, we talked about the camel's vital role in life on the Arabian Peninsula and the nature of the tribal social structure that the Arabs adhere to and how the character traits that define the Arabs, such as honour and pride, complemented that social structure and relations between different groups in Arabia. And we basically concluded that the number one thing that brought people together were ties of blood, ties of kinship and family. Today, we begin with another thing that brought people together, which was wealth. In other words, economic relationships. Every human being to some extent can be labelled as greedy because we are always looking for ways to benefit ourselves. And if you had a genie just pop up and grant you three wishes, the end result is that the wishes that you chose would all in some way ultimately improve your quality of life and your standards of living. Most people on the planet are hard at work at least 40 hours a week to achieve those two goals. Better quality of life and better standards of living. And this is something that we are good at doing as humans, finding little solutions here and there to improve our situation and making the best of a, let's say, undesirable situation. Even the lazy, there's the Bill Gates quote that I'm sure you've all heard, where he said that he would always hire a lazy person to do a difficult job because a lazy person will find an easy way to do it. I don't know if he's been misquoted here or... Maybe it might just not be true, but you can see the point that he is getting at. And just like the last episode where I said that Arabia epitomizes survival of the fittest, it was also a great embodiment of how mankind always finds a way to make the best out of a bad situation. You know, humans are everywhere, in the hottest deserts, the coldest tundras, everywhere. Now in Arabia, due to the bad situation, which is, as we all know by now from the past episodes, is primarily a lack of water, we have some people in Arabia that are settled down and managing to farm near large oases, and another bunch of people who live a life of movement, travelling from well to well, pasture to pasture, depending on seasonal availability of the resources necessary for them to survive and for their animals to survive. And these two groups of people, the nomads and the settled folk, interacted in two ways. Trade and raid. Now, it was the nomads that did most of the raiding, and raiding's pretty straightforward, and you can let your imagination do the work. So, let us look at trade in a bit more detail. Trade is what stops you from just scratching a living. From just surviving. It is how we enable ourselves to live above our natural means because it gives us access to a wider, richer range of goods and services. And trade is always made more lucrative. It's improved when we have jumps in technology, advancements in technology that allow you to move goods faster from point A to point B faster, further distances, and in greater quantities. A massive turning point in history, as we all know, technology-wise, was the Industrial Revolution. 
which was fueled by the invention of such a device, the steam engine, and using it to move stuff faster, further, and in greater quantities through rail transport. And in recent times, the prevalent technology is shipping containers and those massive, massive cargo ships that they are on. And technologies like this allow for trades to be more lucrative and increasingly profitable because your costs are lower. A bit of economics 101. If you have a thousand cars, for example, that you want to transport from, say, Turkey to Brazil, but your cargo ship can only carry 800 cars, uh, you are going to have to either make that trip twice, take 800 and then go back and then take the remaining 200, or just make 800 cars. In both of the instances, you're going to be making less money. The first, because you're going to have to cough up the additional cost of an extra trip, and the second, because you're going to be selling 20% less cars, and therefore you're going to be losing out on 20% less in potential revenue. Now, with a technological advancement like the steam engine or shipping containers that allows you to achieve those three goals from before, you will increase your profit. So, for example, if there are new ships that can carry more cars, you now only need that one trip, saving you the cost of taking two trips. In the case of the ancient Arabs, the technological advancement was the domestication of a camel and the discovery that, wait a minute, these camels, great as they are, can offer us even more than their meat and their milk, even more than their skin. We can use them to not only carry us, but we can use them to carry our stuff, our goods, from one place to another. And the camel achieved all three of those three objectives mentioned before. It allowed the Arabs to move their goods faster, further, and in greater quantities. In last episode, we talked a bit about the way the camel did this, the attributes that the camel had that allowed it to excel in the sandy deserts of Arabia. So if you look at one of those three objectives, let's see further, further distances. So without the camel, the Arabs range in Arabia, the distance they can cover, even the areas that they can actually cross and go into is severely compromised. So if we think about the areas that you can't access without the camel, first thing that comes to mind is Al-Rab al-Khali, the empty quarter. So if, if you don't know where this is, it's in the south, southeast of the Arabian Peninsula. If you go on the blog and check out the episode guide and the gallery for maps and things like that, you'll be able to place it. And I recommend you all do. So without the camel, uh, you lose the ability to cross that area in a commercially feasible manner. So if you can't cross through, if you can't use that desert as a shortcut, let's say, so if you're in the southeast of Arabia and you want to go to Egypt and you can't cross through that desert, you're going to have to go around it. So now your trip is going to be much longer because you're taking a longer route and that makes it more costly to you because in a year that wasted time adds up and that's less trips that you can take. And as for the distance they can cover, for trade, this is useful because if you can cover a, f a longer distance, if you can get for further places, if you can move your goods to further places, you can access larger markets. And what this means is that you can take your goods to more people and therefore you can potentially sell to more people and make more money. And for life in Arabia in general, being able to go deeper into the desert results into A, a refuge from invaders, 
and B, more accessible land that could be exploited for pasture or water sources if they are there. Uh, the other objective was faster. We already kind of talked about it in the further segment because of the way you can use the deserts as shortcuts to cut through and cut down your distance, therefore getting to the end destination faster. But in Arabia, there are no other animals that can be feasibly utilized as pack animals transporting goods across the desert. So if it is you carrying versus the camel, the camel is going to be the faster option. And also, as we often mentioned in the last episode, because a camel doesn't need to drink water that often, this means less pit stops, less time wasted stopping to feed and water the animals, which can be very, very time consuming. And even when they do have to stop, the camels can drink about 100 litres, which is about 30 US gallons, I believe, in less than 15 minutes, which is incredibly quick. And we touched uh, over this in the past episode. And ultimately, what this means is there is a lot of saved time, which means the goods can get to their destination faster. And over a year, for example, this save time adds up considerably, which means more trips can be made and therefore more money can be made. And the third one was greater quantities. And very few animals on the entire planet can rival the camel's strength. And on the Arabian Peninsula, the camel's strength on the desert sands is unrivaled. This means that you can transport a lot more stuff. And if you remember the earlier anecdote about the cargo ships with one being able to carry a 1,000 and the other being able to carry 800. If you could transport more goods in one trip, then you can make considerably more profit because your unit costs are lower. So without the camel or an animal similar to it, it is safe to say that life on Arabia will be considerably different and possibly impossible. As for what they actually traded... As we mentioned in the past episodes, the ancient Arabs were famed particularly for their aromatics. For example, frankincense, which was highly prized and in high demand in ancient times because it was a substance of the gods. The pagans of the ancient world in the Mediterranean and the Near East, such as the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, all used it in their spiritual rituals in their temples. If you think about it, our modern-day stereotypical image of a soothsayer or some kind of old shaman-like character is an old man or woman with a large stick in one hand and some kind of incense holder in the other hand with the incense's fumes and smoke billowing around the shaman giving them that mysterious look as they stand within those clouds. And the Egyptians particularly used it a lot as it was used in the mummification process. Uh, In addition to having a pleasant smell, frankincense was also a natural insect repellent. And often when we speak with uh, experienced historians, when you ask them about what would be the one thing that you would find particularly strange about uh, an ancient marketplace or some some place in, in, in distant history, they would answer with the smell. And I've always thought about how did they deal with the insects that come with smells like that, the flies that would be buzzing around. And I found that frankincense was a really good solution for this. If your house is full of incense or a temple's full of incense, it's going to get rid of all those insects that you don't want. 
all those insects that are associated with bad hygiene and filth and rubbish. The Egyptians actually had an expedition to try and get the seeds or the actual frankincense and myrrh tree in 1480 BC, which is way before the Romans ever showed up on the scene. And the expedition actually failed. They did manage to get saplings of the tree back to Egypt, but it failed to grow there. And this is what allowed the southern Arabians to become a major power in the trade of the incenses, as they essentially had a bit of a monopoly on those substances. Uh, frankincense and myrrh could be grown in other places such as the Puntland, which was the area that is now modern-day Somalia. There are some theories that say that the Puntland actually included parts of southern Arabia, but it is mainly identified as modern-day Somalia. So because they had pretty much a monopoly on uh, frankincense and myrrh, this is what allowed them to become as rich as they were famed to be. And frankincense was actually not exorbitantly expensive to produce. The reason why it was so expensive was because of the extremely high demand. It had a lot of uses and a lot of people wanted to use it. And because of the distance that they had to cover. So the, the, the delivery cost was what caused it to be very high. Because when you pass through uh, a lot of different territories held by different powers, you end up being basically taxed for those goods multiple times, which cause the price to go up. And also, due to the fact that Arabia is a lawless land, how are you going to stop those pesky nomads from raiding your caravan and stealing your merchandise? Well, you can't. The only way you can prevent it is to either pay those nomads for the right to go through their territory, or pay a stronger group of nomads to protect you on your journey through the deserts. Finally, if you are transporting goods in the ancient world for long distances, you're going to have to stop. Uh, you're going to have to stop more to get food and water. Even with the camel's amazing abilities, you're still eventually going to have to stop if you're if you're travelling for weeks at a time. The cost to purchase food and water, not only for yourself, but also for your animals, ultimately ends up compounding the price of the goods that you are carrying. Eventually, however, as all things do, the Southern Arabian incense trade began to decline. And initially, the first signs of decline came from the crisis of the 3rd century. If you haven't heard of this, this was a political and economical crisis in the Roman Empire, where it basically split up until Aurelian managed to sew it back together. And because of this crisis, the people of the Roman Empire couldn't really, well, basically they couldn't really afford the incense anymore. So we have a fall in demand from the incense. And then the second factor was the popularization of Christianity. We have in the 4th century and the coming of Constantine, Christianity becomes the official state religion of the Roman Empire. And now you have a good chunk, if not a majority, of the population of the Roman Empire shifting from a religion that requires frankincense to be used on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, it's used a lot in the pagan rituals. It's used a lot in the temples. To a religion, Christianity, where none of this is really required. So there is a 
substantial drop in the demand for frankincense and this relates to the decline of the incense trade and a loss of wealth really for the South Arabian kingdoms and of all the things that they traded which we're going to come on to just in a second incense was really the big money maker and this was because incense was something that they grew and it was something that they had just themselves as I said before they had a monopoly it was exclusive to them so the loss of incense was actually quite a big hit the other major trade that the Arabians engaged in was the trade of spices and these spices came by way of India and in some cases even the Far East so modern-day Indonesia Malaysia that area and the main spice that they would get was the peppercorn but there are also many other different types of spices we have accounts of things like cinnamon uh, saffron which was one of the most valuable spices in the ancient world and we know of the South Arabian kingdoms as being very spice rich because when we see in ancient accounts of tribute being given the tribute is mainly in the form of either spices or incense and sometimes a combination of the both if you head over to the episode guide for this episode, you'll find that I've included a bunch of very useful maps that will basically show you the ancient trade routes between Arabia and other places. So I'll include overland trade routes, so those caravan routes from uh, south of Arabia, for example, taking incense up to the Mediterranean, and also the shipping maritime trade routes that linked the Arabs with the Persians in the Persian Gulf and the Indians and even the Far East. So those are a good resource to go and check out to give you a better view and understanding of the ancient trade routes. And it'll really allow you to see how the Arabs really took advantage of their geographical position to act as middlemen in the trade of goods around the ancient world. And just like international trade linked the Arabs with the rest of the world, local trade linked the Arabs with each other. And due to the combination of trade and the oases that were present, this led to the rise of market and commercial centres where Arabs would come together for the purpose of trade. And this would lead to bustling centres of activity wherever the supply of water was adequate, where nomads would come and trade their goods of milk and butter and wool and hide and skins and leathers for the goods of agricultural communities such as barley, oils, grains, wine, weapons and so on. If you recall from the last episode where I mentioned the shrine that was built, well in Arabia there were countless shrines similar to that one and some of these if close to a land suitable for agriculture for example or more commonly a bountiful source of water such as a particularly deep well this would lead to the rise of a center of commercial activity around that shrine and this was because due to the fact that Arabia was a lawless land and someone can rob you at any moment on your way to the market or while you're selling and buying wares at the market the Arabs saw the markets near the shrines as a more attractive place for trading because in their superstition they were less likely to harm anyone or spill blood within the territory of the gods so as to avoid their curses. So by trading near the shrines in what was sacred territory, they were essentially safer. The most famous of these sacred sites 
was the holy city of Mecca, which was actually in a location, unlike other shrines, ill-suited to agriculture. Yet, it was held in reverence by all the pagan Arabs and flocked to from all corners of the peninsula by Arabs in pursuit of pilgrimage and pleasing the gods. That brings this episode to an end. Next episode, we will start with the story of the tribe of the Prophet and how they ended up in possession of the sanctuary, after which we will finally begin with the life of the Prophet himself. This episode will have some footnotes, so if you want to continue and listen to those, please do so. Otherwise, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next Thursday. You're now listening to the footnotes segment. Alright, the first thing I want to mention is a couple features I have created on the website. The first feature is a glossary page, which is now on the blog, which has been suggested by listener Carl. So you've got Carl to thank for that. And the glossary page is basically going to include uh, any Arabic words that I use in the podcast with their translation and what they mean. If you have any suggestions for an entry on the glossary page that is not already there, then you know what to do. Just message me on the contact page on the blog. Also on the site, there is now a gallery page where I'll put all the pictures ever used in an episode guide. So you have a convenient place where you can see all the pictures in the same place. And the blog, um, courtesy of Blogspot, actually has a pretty cool gallery mode where... If you click on one picture, it takes you into this slideshow view mode, sort of, where you can uh, scroll through the pictures. Uh, The other one is the categories slash index page. Firstly, it will have an index, basically, of all the useful pages on the website. So a link to uh, RSS feeds, uh, gallery, glossary, etc. So a link to all the useful pages on the blog. And then after that will be the categories section, where... Basically, the episodes will be separated and the episode guides will be separated into the historical period that they're set in. So, first section will be pre-Islamic Arabia. So, if you click on that, it will show all the episodes and the episode guides for uh, episodes that are set in pre-Islamic Arabia. And then after that, it will be Muhammad's life before prophethood, Muhammad's life after prophethood, and then life of the successor caliphs, and then... Umayyad dynasty, Abbasid dynasty, and so on. So that way, in the future, this is more for the future, uh, someone coming back or someone that's interested in one particular section uh, of Islamic history can just find the appropriate podcast that they're looking for. Uh, The next thing that I wanted to mention is that if there are any uh, unforeseen technical issues uh, in the future and you can't access the episode, what I've done is I've put a backup link in the episode guide, in the episode guide, not the episode post, where you can download the episode directly from uh, from Mega. So that stops any issues in the future. So if I'm hit with a technical issue that I can't solve straight away, then you can just access the episode from from that link, the alternative link that's provided in the episode guide. Uh, next, um, I've already started writing up the bibliography page. So 
Uh, expect to see that on the site pretty soon. Uh, to find it, just go on the category slash index uh, bit, which will be in the menu bar. So you click on that and then it will take you to all the useful links. And then the bibliography page will be there pretty soon along with the gallery and the glossary and all the other, uh, all the other stuff on the website. Uh, finally, I just want to let you know that I'm not going through the pre-Islamic Arabia Q&A episode. If you have any questions that are of utmost importance, then just give them to me via the contact page and I'll either reply to you directly if I have the time or answer it in the footnotes section. So I think that will be better than dedicating a complete episode. Um, it might still be a possibility for the future, but right now um, I think it's more important to move on so we can enter the actual history of Islam and the Prophet's, uh, the prophet's life. And before I sign off and say goodbye, um, I just want to ask you guys what you think about the Christmas period. Uh, Do you still want me to try and get episodes out during the Christmas period or would it be okay to take a break? I think I'll I'll be happy to release during the Christmas period. I think that'll be okay. But apparently um, I've been looking around forums in the podcast community and apparently... uh, listen listens do a dip during the christmas period obviously people are more preoccupied with uh, celebrating their holidays than sitting around and listening to podcasts so if you guys are still willing to listen and uh, and there's still a demand for me to make them during the christmas period then i will but you do have to let me know all right thank you that is all for now please make sure you check out the episode guide for some extra content and some maps and images that i, I find very useful and i'm sure that you will as well As always, your suggestion and your feedback is very appreciated. So please do contact me on uh, the contact page on the blog. I've already had some quite pleasant conversations with some of you. And this is something that I encourage from those of you that haven't sent me messages yet. And uh, the more the merrier, really. Um, I've actually noticed that we have quite a widespread listenership. Uh, We have one guy from Finland, quite a few people in the US, Turkey, all throughout Europe. So it is very pleasing to me. Thank you very much for supporting the project. Thank you very much for listening. And I'll see you next Thursday. Goodbye.